Hi, and welcome to Talking With Cancer. I'm Katie, and I'm here to give you an honest, real, and even funny outlook on living with cancer. There is no one way to do cancer, and I've decided to share my story to help and inspire others, as well as raise awareness. At age 43, I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer known as hobnail in February 2022, having never had any health issues previously. I was fit and well and took pretty good care of myself. But despite that, I got a diagnosis and I am on a long-term treatment plan. On this podcast, I will be sharing my progress regularly. And I often speak to amazing guests who've been impacted by cancer in some way. I really hope you enjoy listening. And if you do, then please rate, review, follow and recommend the pod. Hello, listeners. How are you doing as we move properly into spring? It's taken a while, hasn't it? Anyway, today I just wanted to talk to you briefly about my guest before I play the interview. The backstory goes like this. My lovely aunt, Helen, who is quite a spiritual soul, said to me, you've got to check out this book. It's called Change Your Mind, Heal Your Body by Anna Parkinson. The strap line is, when modern medicine has no cure, the answer lies within my true story of self-healing. So I did what she told me and I bought the book. It's not really like me. I always go for audiobooks, don't I? But I thought, hmm, I'll buy this one. I'll read it cover to cover, which I did in about five days. And I was just blown away. I found her story to be incredibly hopeful and inspiring and it kind of shifted something in me, actually. It reminded me that, you know, we are in our bodies and, like, we have the power to manage what goes on in our bodies. And to believe that is kind of like half of the process, really. So having read the book, I felt that I wanted to know more and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to really practice in a similar way to the way she had. To really condense her story, she lived a busy life as a successful BBC producer and in her 40s discovered that she had a brain tumour which was inoperable and there was no treatment for the brain tumour. And her life changed at that point, basically. It was obviously a hugely pivotal moment And she went on for the next seven years to really work on her healing, to learn meditation, to understand the chakras, to understand how emotions and feelings hold trauma in our bodies that play out as physical things. Yeah, a lot of it made sense to me. And then fast forward a couple of weeks and my aunt said to me, I would really be interested for you to do this course like would you be interested in doing it I've discovered one of the teachers that Anna talks about is a man called Martin Brothman who sadly passed away but he still has like these courses that I think it was his wife maybe his daughter go on to teach so I was looking these up and I couldn't find any in London and the next thing I realized Anna herself actually was doing a course in chakra healing through the College of Psychic Studies And it was an eight-week course every Tuesday evening over Zoom. Me and about 15 other women got together. And Anna basically led these two-hour courses, talking all about the different chakras and what they relate to, what years of development they also relate to. And through meditation, learning to kind of unravel again different emotions that we hold it might be fear or pain or anger and some of these feelings might go back to these different years of development in childhood and I found this course like really informative and really effective and I feel like it was kind of like laid the foundation for me for as I've talked about this kind of integrative holistic approach to my treatment So I was absolutely thrilled when Anna agreed to come on the podcast and I had a really fantastic chat with Anna 
And she was incredibly generous with her time. We spoke for ages and I could have spoken to her for a lot longer. I had so many more questions I could have asked, but I'm going to play the interview for you now and I really hope you enjoy it. I really mean that. I'm not a great reader, but I just got stuck into your book, Change Your Mind, Heal Your Body, and we'll come on to that. It was just a very honest account of your story. And it was something that I obviously could easily connect to, but it was very hopeful. And it was like, wow, your life had changed in such a way but the outcome was so positive. I think that Change Your Mind, Heal Your Body was really written from a place of getting a very severe medical diagnosis. And when that happens, one is in a state of shock. You don't perhaps realise the degree of shock that you are experiencing, but it's very profound to be told by somebody that, you have to be cut open or you might die in a few months or even when they say they don't know. But your body does go through a really deep process of shock. For me, that was something, one is a little bit like the roadrunner to start with. You keep going. Oh, God, yes. And you don't realise that the ground underneath you has disappeared. You realise it in your dreams, you realise it at night, you realise it at four o'clock in the morning, but it's very difficult to put together that reality with the reality that you've been living before. So you haven't really asked the question, but the thing is that I wrote that book having been through all those phases from shock to discovery to success and I knew sometime before I actually had it confirmed on a scan that the tumour that I'd been diagnosed with, the brain tumour that they found, I was pretty sure that it was diminishing, that it was going, but I needed to wait until it had been finally confirmed by the MRI scan before I felt I could say, okay, this has been my journey, this is what happened, and this is how, from my point of view, it went away. So when I talk about you, I say, you know, there's this amazing woman, Anna Parkinson, she basically meditated her brain tumour away. Yeah, and the best of all of that was my husband, who's very sceptical and still deeply sceptical. He used to call my meditation, which I insisted on because it was so powerful for me. He used to call it my medication. And it was actually the only medication I ever had. Yeah. So you didn't have any treatment because they said it was inoperable, this brain tumour, and you weren't taking any treatment for it. They didn't have a treatment. And also it was actually a real credit to the super cautious approach of British consultants, although French were the same, the Americans were not, because I went all around the world, obviously seeing if there was some kind of cure for what I'd been told I had. My brother was living in America and was able to introduce me to some consultants there, and I sent them my scans. But I decided, in spite of the fact that they did offer me operations to go with European caution. The European caution was based on the fact that they didn't know whether it was cancerous or not. It was very, very deep in my brain. It had one half of my carotid artery wound around it. And so they didn't even biopsy it, which was wonderful. There was no interference at all. The only interference was this report that I would get three monthly intervals of, you know, the image of this tumour. Which they sometimes would lose. They lost these scans, <sighs> didn't they? And there was a whole admin issue going on with that as well, which must have been really frustrating. But with your healing hat on, I don't know if you ever take it off, why do you think that was? Well, what happened was really interesting and also really lucky for me 
because as I say, when I started, I was, you know, like a normal professional woman. I'd had a good and busy job. I was a producer for the BBC. I made radio documentaries, which I kind of loved, but I'd also got to a point where I was really frustrated. You know, the stories seemed to keep coming around in circles. It was all talk, talk, talk. Nothing ever changed. And also, they were not my stories. There was something unsatisfying. It was lovely to be able to curate, if you like, other people's voices. But there was something deeply frustrating about it for me. And I'd been experiencing that for quite a while, maybe three or four years, I would say. But nevertheless, and I had just found a story that was my own that I really wanted to tell. This came through reading an old book that belonged to my father. It was a herbal, a description of plants that was written in the 17th century by a herbalist, Charles I, who was supposed to be an ancestor of mine. After my father died, I borrowed this book that was published in 1629, and I read it. You don't very often read books that are published that long ago. And I completely fell in love with this man. I thought, this is wisdom, this is connection, this is a fascinating story. I didn't know why nobody had told his story because he'd been famous, you know, to various groups of people in the intervening 350 years. But nobody had told his story. Nobody had found out who he was or where he came from. And I wanted to find that. I wanted to find the answers for that. I wanted to tell that story. I began to piece it together. I had just sold. I'd taken time off work to write this story. It was going really well. I had just sold the book to a publisher. And two weeks later, I was diagnosed with a brain tumour. So on the one hand, things were going really well. And on the other hand, it was a complete disaster. So what happened in the succeeding months was that I was dealing with the shock that I told you about. I am going to carry on and finish the book. If I was going to go blind or die, I was damn well going to finish the book first. But at the same time, I couldn't deny that my nighttime self was having complete hissy fit. I mean, I was having nightmares every night. And I was just longing for the dawn because, you know, it was really difficult. And I'd been told by his consultant that they were going to have to cut my head open and all sorts of things that were terrifying. So in answer to your question, what happened was that although it was really frustrating and difficult trying to get answers out of the hospital and that frustration and difficulty continued, eventually the intensity of the emotion that I was experiencing, the anger and the frustration about it, had the effect of, if you like, increasing the volume of my self-talk. I was talking to myself. You do that when you're really angry. You know, I was going for walks and I was having conversations with whoever it was I was angry with. And eventually I thought, yeah, listen to what you're saying. I was, for example, having conversations with the first consultant very much who had lost my scans and blah, 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 blah. Mm. And I was saying angrily, this is my head. And it may be just a case to you. But it's my head and it really matters to me. And that's when I thought, just listen to that. This is your body. Because when you have a really difficult diagnosis, a really threatening situation, the tendency is to become completely helpless in the face of, if you like, the steamroller of the medical system. That doesn't mean they don't mean well and they don't intend to do the best for you, but it is very common to feel completely flattened, completely passive in the face of a really serious potential outcome. 
But in fact, it's really important to remember that it is your body. And in fact, no one else can understand your body as well as you can, because no one else can understand quite so deeply what your feelings are and your memories are and your experiences are. A lot later, when I had been through the process of healing, what I had really learned to understand was how closely married your feelings from babyhood through to the present day are to your physical body. Yeah. I mean, it's very profound what you're saying because it sounds like almost you had this epiphany of like, this is my brain, this is my head, this is my tumour and I'm in control of what my body can and can't do. But I feel like getting to that point does take time. Well, in my experience, because, you know, what you're saying is very relatable for me because I spent the year after my diagnosis where I was told my cancer was treatable, not curable, repeating that. And one of the first things I said to you when I did your course was, I want to change the narrative. There's a medical narrative on my case, and this is what they say, but that doesn't have to be my narrative. It felt very empowering to be able to say that, but now I have to do the work, which is quite hard, and commit to that. But I suppose what I'm interested in is prior to this diagnosis happening in 2002, and obviously you'd come across the book and there's some healing elements obviously to that, the original book about the herbs and the plants. But prior to that, how did healing exist in your life and in your world? How did it play out? It didn't, I knew nothing about it. I had begun to meditate. I was accustomed to making space for myself to a degree. When I was in my probably mid forties with two small children, full-time job, commuting to London, I was getting out of bed kind of aching in the morning and I was told by the doctor that it was old age and I stuffed that. And I realized that I needed to make a little bit of space for myself. This was before self-care, wasn't it, Anna? <laughs> exactly. And I don't know what it was. I didn't even know how to make the space. I have always been blessed with, at times of crisis, quite a loud inner voice. It just says very, very basic things like, you know, what you want to do is communication, get on with it. Or And it never does it, you know, when I really wanted to do it, but it does it when I'm feeling pretty broken. And it has always done that. So I was feeling pretty broken as I got out of bed in the morning. And my instruction to myself was just sit there. We had a, a book in the household about by Jill Murphy. It was a children's book and it was called Five Minutes Peace. And it was about a family of elephants. The mother elephant used to go to the bathroom and lock the door and have a bath so she could have her five minutes peace. And I thought, that's exactly what I need. So I would get the children out of bed, put their breakfast on the table, get their clothes on. And I would just say, I'm going upstairs, five minutes peace. Don't come upstairs. And they learned very quickly. I mean, they were only little, but they learned very quickly that it was my time. All I did was put the clock beside me and sit on a cushion, close my eyes and breathe. And then after like about two minutes, I'd look at the clock and I couldn't believe that it was only two minutes later. So basically what I was doing was I was accustoming myself to like inner space. I was watching my mind mm. as it was telling me to do all kinds of things that I wasn't doing. And I was just realizing that I was not entirely that narrative. As you say, I was not entirely that person who needed to get dressed, go downstairs, get in the car, do whatever. I was able to sit and watch that and even say to it, excuse me, would you mind just butting out for a minute? Because I've got these five minutes here. 
that was a very, very interesting relationship because I realized that there was more mind behind what I had thought. I was accustomed to that. Right. When I heard myself say, this is my head, I've only got one of them and it's really important to me, there was a part of me that knew that was listening to that. There is something innate there, you know. Everybody has it, but I had already been exploring it. So the meditations, because obviously I've done the course with you and that was a brilliant eight-week cleansing the chakras, it was called. A lot of that, which I didn't realise going into, was practising the meditations that you do. And I've done loads of meditation. I've done meditation like most of my life, but it's never been so visual. And the meditations that you do or teach are very visual and obviously what you're doing is kind of encouraging, tapping into the subconscious, exploring your imagination. Where are you holding fear? Where are you holding anger? How does that relate to the different chakras? And it's really effective. It's really, really effective. What did your medical team make of your healing practice? Did they know what you were doing? No. no. I once said to a GP, my GP, that I did a lot of yoga and I used meditation to help myself get better. He thought that was a good thing. What I noticed is that over the period, but I didn't feel comfortable about going into a consultant's surgery and saying, I don't think any of your methods are working for me, but this is what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm not actually a confrontational person. I feel that what I was discovering was a language, and it was the language of my body, and it was a language of consciousness. And it was at the point at which it crystallized for me was when I met Martin Broffman. Now, Martin was not the first healer that I'd been to see. I have a lovely half-sister who was very proactive in getting me to see anybody who might have helped me. And so I explored with her healers, never having done that before. And I noticed that someone who intended to heal me could have a physical, I mean, I could feel what they were doing physically. And I found that extraordinary. Even though it didn't necessarily lift the symptoms I didn't necessarily feel that I was cured or whatever I did notice that I could feel the energy that they were putting through me and I thought well that must be something then because it's not a physical instrument it's just healing and so I explored quite cautiously I must say this healer who she was very interested in, although she'd never been to see him for healing. And eventually I did go and see him for healing. The thing that I found so powerful about what he did for me is that he explained to me afterwards what he'd been doing and what he'd seen. And because of this explanation, he was making a connection with my conscious mind and I could recognize what he'd done. Or rather, I could recognize the person that he'd been healing, even though I didn't think that she was important anymore. What he was doing is he was reaching into emotions, thoughts, feelings, conclusions that I had considered to be reality, and therefore I didn't examine them anymore. They were my emotions, thoughts, feelings, and conclusions that I had built up over the period of my life. But because I considered them to be reality and therefore universal, but what he was doing was rebalancing that. And at the same time as me feeling different in a weird way that I couldn't really explain I was also recognizing an energetic language that was contained in my body because if it hadn't been contained in my body he wouldn't have been able to see it 
because you've always said, you know, you, you have to heal yourself. Someone else can't do it for you. And like we've discussed, it takes work. So it sounds like with your experience with him, there was a connection there and an ownership of what you were experiencing and feeling. It wasn't that he was doing something over there. It was all intertwined. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the self-healing for me is a really important part of the way I work and what I teach. It's not that I don't give healings to people. I love to give healings to people, but I regard it as a little bit like your car breaks down, you call out the mechanic, the mechanic sorts out the energy as it is there, gets you back on the road. But ultimately, you are the one that's motoring. Ultimately, your body is your vehicle. And you want to change the perception that you have that led to the tension that caused your illness in the first place. And you want to change the physical experience of that tension so that you don't continue to experience it. Just on Martin, how did your relationship evolve to the point that you yourself were able to become a healer? That was through his teaching, wasn't it? That was through his teaching. So initially, I went back. The next day, I was editing the book that I had managed to write by the time I met Martin. And I suddenly saw, reading the first two lines of this book, which was eventually published, it's called Nature's Alchemist, how the whole story that Martin had been relaying to me, that was my emotional story, my emotional baby story, I had also been living it out through this exploration of my father's ancestor that began after, immediately after my father's death. And I saw that we had three layers there. We had my exploration of my father and the roots and the ancestor story. We had the fact that my symptoms, which had been developing and gradually explored, had started six months after my father died. And we had the emotional story that Martin had been explaining to me, which I recognized as myself, but had thought was not important because it belonged to a three-year-old. And all of these things came together at the same time. And I recognized that this was like a language that I had never experienced before that nobody had ever relayed to me before. And it was like stepping through into the other side of a mirror. So it was exactly the same life. I wasn't going to go downstairs transformed. I wasn't going to change my family or whatever. But I was seeing it in a different way. I was seeing it all connected. I became completely fascinated by that language. I've always been fascinated by language, but this was a different kind of language. I went to learn it. Martin used to do these four-day courses of healing, which were fantastic. And in fact, the body mirror system of healing still does four-day courses. Although Martin is not alive anymore, his widow and a couple of other teachers also teach them. And that's how I began to explore healing and I began to learn to be a healer myself. It's a very different thing when you are healing yourself to when you're healing other people and going very back different. to five minutes of peace. You know, what I always imagine is like you have to really have boundaries and work hard not to absorb what's going on with other people because, you know, you must see people that are going through all sorts of things. So how do you manage that? Well, I've been practicing as a healer for a long time now and I have learned so much through it I'm really grateful it's been like being able to explore the language of human consciousness if you like but it's not the same as my consciousness it's not the same as my own limitations if you like my own self-imposed limitations and the process of self-healing was a process of compassionately, I do put that word in, because it's not something we use to ourselves very often, but compassionately 
allowing and encouraging myself to explore those self-imposed limitations and release them. So when you say that the meditations that I teach are very visual, yes, they are. What I was discovering was a way of translating the imagination into a physical reality and using that translation to physically change things. So it's like if you can discover a feeling, which my meditations might lead you to, that feeling can cause enormous alarm. It can cause you a desire to shut it down because it caused you alarm and a desire to escape from it when it first occurs. And it is a shock to discover that you can have intense feelings buried in your body, even though you have overcome them and outdistanced them and become bigger. But those intense feelings actually do shape your reality. And so you deal with it by allowing yourself to translate it into something physical. And your body knows how to deal with physical things. Your mind knows how to deal with physical things. So you translate it into an object that can be disposed of, that can be buried or... And all of this, I know I, I'm making it sound really simple because all of this is a discovery over a process of time. But essentially for me, that is what the nature of ritual is. Or, you know, different cultures have different rituals, but. The nature of ritual is business of turning something really powerful that occupies your emotion and your imagination into something physical in your imagination that can be dealt with. And as you deal with it, with whatever method you are using, you feel a physical release, you feel a physical change, a release of tension in your body. Hmm. So once you'd gone through the healing with Martin and you decided to become a healer yourself, just going back a little bit or in between that time, once you got the scan results that the tumour had gone, that question that I asked before about sharing with your medical team what you were going through, which you chose not to, how did they explain it? How was it explained? How did you explain it? The last time... I went to see the consultant. He was a lovely man. He was a bit late. He said, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. I've been having some health problems. And I wanted to offer him a healing, but I didn't. <laughs> and then we looked at the images on the scan, and it had shrunk. It had been shrinking. This was, you know, six years after. No, actually, it was more like seven years after I had first been to see them. And it had been shrinking, but I hadn't been for a scan for four years. But I knew that before I could write a book about what was happening, I needed that confirmation. And it had shrunk. It was barely visible. It was like uh, there was a, a mark, but it was like sort of the end of a fingernail, little fingernail. And he said, it's just a mark. He said, there's nothing there to worry about. He said, well, we never really knew what it was anyway, did we? And I just thought, well, yeah, you know, I said to you when you had your healing, that rare is good. The rarer you can have it, the better. You get a disproportionate amount of attention when it's rare because it's medically interesting. But you shouldn't let that disproportionate amount or scientifically interesting you shouldn't let that disproportionate amount of attention skew the story. In other words, you don't need to have your problem so that the doctors can explore it. Yeah, well, that chimes very real because I talked on this podcast a couple of series ago about how I was worried that I was sort of so attached to the cancer because it was giving me a freedom in a way. It was giving me reason and meaning and exploration and all of this stuff 
yeah, I had to accept that I didn't need the cancer in order to live like that. That is such a beautiful thing to say, Katie. You are so right. However devastating, whatever it is that you have, it is doing something for you. Your body loves you. It wants you to be happy. It was about two years meditating on this before I understood why would I have given myself a brain tumor? Why would I have done that? But I accepted the principle, but I really did not understand. And then one day I understood and I laughed out loud. I thought if I had tried to devise a means to leave my job, which I felt bound to because it was a very good job. They didn't want to make me redundant and I was supporting the family with it, but still have enough money to live on. I could never have come up with such an ingenious solution. Now, I don't mean to say that I was deceiving anybody, but the fact is that I had a meeting with my bosses with a doctor present and the medical diagnosis was dire. My symptoms were terrible. I was completely cross-eyed. I had terrible headaches that would last for weeks, which they eventually decided was a brain bleed, but didn't do me any harm. You know, brain bleeds can be devastating, but it didn't do me any harm. But I would be completely unable to function for three weeks or so after one of these bleeds. So if I had tried to devise something really serious, but that wasn't going to kill me, I couldn't have come up with a better solution. And eventually they put me on a medical pension and I left. But you know what? Like the way that, I mean, your teaching and your belief system, you know, could be seen as quite controversial, right? I agree. To kind of say, well, this terrible illness has happened to you because of a deep traumatic emotion that you're holding on to or because of, you know... I get it, but I think it must be hard to win over an audience. And like I say, you know, there may be people that would even be offended by that. So, yeah, how do you deal with that? That's why I put that word compassionately in, because there is no blame associated. When I wrote the second book, Beyond Sex and Soup, it was not about physical illnesses. It was about the fact that we all go through traumas of jealousy, anger, you know, massive amount of emotional upheavals. And one of the characteristics of the emotions that we go through is that it's always somebody else's fault. You know, you are making me angry because you behave so badly. You are making me jealous because you're too beautiful and what I was discovering and what I've been you know, through in discovering this language is this dichotomy. We live on two sides of reality. And part of the reality is our side of the mirror. It's entirely private. It's our inner self. If we change that inner self, the outer experience also changes. And so Beyond Sex and Soup was about, look, you really don't need to have a terrifying medical diagnosis to make your life freer, better, happier. And that's what I wanted to write in that book. Not everybody wants to live like that. Some people want it to be in somebody else's hands. They want it to be someone else's fault. And that is absolutely their choice. You know, I'm a self-fulfilling prophecy. Nobody comes to me for healing and doesn't accept their part in whatever they're going through. But equally, I would never go to the doctors, although they're changing now. And I think they will have to change. But if I was a, a medical doctor and I said to somebody, look, you know, this pain in your leg you keep coming to me with, that has to do with the fact that you're not feeling comfortable at home or nobody's supporting you. Then I might get a lot of flack because they're coming to a medical doctor for that person to sort it out. 
And this is why doctors feel the pressure. I mean, it's really, they know that they can't. Okay, this may be controversial. I believe that the majority of doctors know that they are not fully in charge, not fully in control. They do their best. And sometimes they're relying on whatever someone else has told them is the best, like a pharmaceutical company. But they're not fully in charge of a person's recovery. I actually appreciate when my team say to me, we don't know, which they say often because there are no other me's. They've never dealt with it before. They've never seen it before. The plot thickens as I get more tests and things come in. So I, I've always, I grew up with the doctor. And so I've always seen that doctors are people, you know. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the books? So you've already said so it sounds like you had the idea of change your mind, heal your body before you got to the end of your healing. Is that right? Yes. I wanted to share that healing is something that you don't need to be born to. It's a capacity that we all have. I felt very much not like, you know, the person who says, when I was four years old, I saw the angels dancing around the trees. That was absolutely not me at all. I'm a practical person and always loved the physical realities of life. Yet, as I said to you, I was discovering through my body another language and a language that I needed to engage with. And through engaging with that, I could change what was happening in my body. And I realized that I was no different from anybody else. And what I could do, anyone else could do, I thought it would be useful to show that progression, if you like. And also, I just wanted to write the methods that I used, and I put those in the book. And when it came mm. to publishing it, the publisher said, well, you know, people read books for story, and you can put all your methods at the back. Yeah, that's very useful, actually. You put a lot of really great methods. It's very informative. The whole appendix, what can you do for you? And that's quite a lot of the, about 50 pages there. Yeah. Brilliant. So you decided that this would make sense once you got to the end of your story. So what happened with Martin? First, I studied with him on his courses and went to courses that he did all over Europe. Then I started to organise his courses in the UK. Oh. And then we had a really strange course martin was not an easy person he was very clever and he was a great teacher he was very exacting and quite difficult and we had this really strange course that i organized and martin couldn't get into the country he didn't live in the uk and because we were not in the schengen agreement they refused him entry when he got to the airport and there i had all these people waiting for this teaching course oh no and I had to manage it you know one way or another and I did manage it but I realized you know again it was this loud voice something this is coming to an end and you need to decide well what I really heard in my head was okay now you can write now you have the time to write so I already knew that I wanted to write that book and how did Beyond Sex and Soup come about? Well, as I said, Martin developed a school of body mirror healing and taught these courses, which are still taught today. And it's a great method and they're great courses, which I would recommend to anybody. But it didn't contain this element of self-healing. And I felt that was missing. I felt that... What you can do for yourself with encouragement and help is so powerful and so profound that it really enriches your life and as it has enriched mine. And you actually don't need to be suffering from a terrible disease to start that journey. I mean, many of us suffer in lots of ways, like, you know, we don't speak to our sister or we... Uh, we're angry with my mother, or you don't have a relationship with your father, or really powerful things like that, or you feel that you can't speak to people at work, or we suffer these 
really agonizing emotions. Now, I would say, knowing what I do about the way that physical tensions work, that physical tensions are a wearing down of the body at various points because of emotional tensions. But you can address emotional tensions. And it goes back to what I was saying before, that if you deal with your side of the mirror, your side of the story, your emotional side of the story, the physical side of the story that you experience, the physical reality that you're engaged with changes because all energy is connected to all other energy. And I had experienced that and I'd been teaching people that who had come for me to make a healing, but I wanted to explain that, how to do it, you know, from A to Z. <laughs> and Beyond Sex and Soup is really, you know, you've done the course that I teach, but the course is very, very dense <laughs> and there's a lot of material that happens very quickly. And we don't necessarily evolve that quickly. You need a reference to go back to and re-explore. And that's really what Beyond Sex and Soup is. Right. Okay. I need to get that and read that. Um, I loved the course. I thought it was, yeah, it was really enlightening. And I took a lot away from it. I think there is quite a lot. I mean, you're so generous with the meditations, Anna. You send, I mean, I've got a whole, I've now made a whole playlist full of my chakra meditations. They're brilliant. I just want to ask you one final question, which is, what do you advise people? Because I feel very fortunate that I came across you, a very experienced and very learned healer. But again, I've talked a lot on the podcast that there are a lot of shamans out. Sort of, you know, you've got to be careful about some of this world. There are people, not shamans, I mean charlatans, that was the word I was looking for, who claim to be something that they might not be. They might be people that could take advantage of people that need healing. So how should people go about finding a healer and feeling like this is someone that really knows what they're doing? That's a very good question. And I absolutely remember myself feeling very, very nervous about even going to see Martin. There's that sense that we all have that perhaps a healer might take you over or, you know, change your self-possession in some way. So the first thing is, you have to explore. There's no way that you can discover without exploring. Yeah. And the second yeah. thing is that you have to trust your experience. You can only know the truth by experiencing it. Whatever somebody says... If that's not your experience, then it's not true for you. And you are, you know, just like going back to the beginning of our conversation, I said, you know, I heard this voice in me that said, this is my head. You are the arbiter of truth for you. And so you have to trust everything that feels like truth. So it might be a kind of little itch on the end of your nose. It might be a sort of slight quickening of the beat of your heart it might be you know your sense that your ears are pricking up curiosity we've all got it you have to explore and if there's anything that doesn't resonate with you I mean somebody for example recently sent me something they were organizing they really wanted me to come along they so much wanted me to meet this person who was a teacher before going, I listened to something that he'd recorded and I picked up something in the timbre of his voice that felt like falsity to me. And I thought, I'm not going anywhere near it at all. It was just like a little vibration. And I thought, you're lying. Trust your instinct. Well, OK, because I was going to then say, well, from what I've learned with you, your intuition, which is the throat chakra, you know, that's where you've maybe got to do the kind of work to know, is this person right for me or not? But instinct is... Um... Instinct is much deeper. But yes. there, so this is the thing that we learned and that, that I will just say again. Instinct is very deep because it, it covers everything, like your desire for sex and soup for a start. 
it covers the um, primal functioning of your body. A lot of your feelings, positive and negative, just resonate in your body. So intuition is a little bit more subtle. It's still a very powerful desire. It's still a very powerful driver. And you can get a tension there between you, what you want to be, and what you feel you are, you should express or able to express. Something that you need to work through. Mm. But um, intuition is more easily suppressed than instinct. Mm. Anna, it's been so lovely chatting to you. Thank you for your generosity, your time and all your knowledge and wisdom. It's been great. I really enjoyed talking to you, Katie, and I hope that it can help other people to find their way through to healing. Mm, I'm sure it will. Thank you, Anna. I'll see you soon. So that was my interview with the lovely Anna Parkinson. Yeah, I think what's really wonderful about her outlook is that Anyone has the ability and the potential to do this work on themselves. You know, we talked at the end about intuition and how do you know kind of when something's right for you or when someone's right for you. And I think like I do believe that people have that very deep instinct or instinctive intuition about people in their lives, people that they come across. Is this person right for you? Do they give you a good energy? Are you able to feel like yourself with that person? And I think like that's not just like friendships and relationships. That's, you know, on a professional level, definitely on a medical level. I mean, again, I feel so lucky that the people around me in my medical team, but also people that I see, you know, to help me with like all the side effects that I feel and to help me physically and to help me emotionally. Like there's a great connection there and I really value those relationships. And I think that Anna's right, you know, if it feels good and it feels like there's a connection and intuitively you feel like there's something really positive in that experience and that's great. But if something tells you it's not right, you've got to listen to that as well. And sometimes I think, oh, well, maybe that's just me being overly cautious or maybe that's just me being cynical. But if you can kind of dig below that stuff, I think the truth comes to the surface. So I think that's a really important thing to consider, you know, if you are looking into this sort of stuff and it's not for everyone. But if you are, then just really do the due diligence on that person and see how you feel in the room with them. I think that's really great advice. So yeah, thanks again, Anna, for the great chat. And I hope that you all enjoyed listening. I've got in the show notes uh, more information about her books. Yeah, I hope that's useful. And thanks for listening. It's been great. I'll see you guys soon. Bye. Bye.